today on Owl Have You Know. I try and be very, very upfront about the limitations of our knowledge, whether it's the theoretical background or, or any of this stuff. Here's what we're pretty sure we know. Here's what we think, but don't know so that they recognize this is all a work in progress and no, no answer is going to be perfect. Welcome back to another episode of Owl Have You Know. This is your host, David Druglier, and I'm on the line with a faculty member. It is Dr. Alan Crane who is currently teaching at uh, Rice Business. I always have to check myself. It's, we don't say Jones School anymore. I'm dating myself now. But Rice Business um, teacher and professor of finance. So, Alan, thank you for coming on. Well, thanks for having me. All right. So we have about 25 minutes or so, and I have three topics I'd like to focus on. The first is sort of the why finance or how you got into finance. Definitely want to ask you about your teaching experience. What are the kids like these days in the classroom? And then perhaps some recommendations for students and alumni. Um, so you ready to get going? Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Okay, so the first topic, um, how did you end up uh, getting into finance? I took a look at your LinkedIn, so I did my LinkedIn stalking. And pretty much all of your careers has been focused on finance. So is there a life experience that led you down this path? Was it your family lineage? Yeah, so not, not at all with the, the family. Um, so it really, uh, you know, a, a lot of it comes down to good faculty mentors when I was an undergrad student. Um, and so I think to some degree that has actually influenced how I have sort of continued in this career path with respect to how I, you know, hopefully interact with students as well. Because there was a a big effect of their perspective and their advice in terms of where where I wanted to go with my my career. I took a an introduction to economics course my freshman year of college, like so many people did, and and uh, it sounds sort of cliche, but it changed my life. Um, and I have thought that way ever since, and and have sort of uh, gone down that path. Uh, and you know, finance professors, we're we're really applied, you know, economics. So we take all the same sort of courses in grad school that someone that gets a PhD in economics would. And so it's very similar. Uh, we're focused on financial markets and, and corporate finance and some specific questions around finance. But the training is the same. And, uh, and you know, for better or worse, I was sort of brainwashed into that early. Uh, and it was tough, tough to leave it behind. Um, once you sort of change your worldview um, and kind of think the way an economist does, uh, you know, it, it's hard to see the world through any, any other lens. And I just love that. Well, this is actually surprising me because I never have thought about the relationship between finance and economics. I mean, clearly in academia, those are parsed out into different courses. So, and, and you just use those words seemingly interchangeably. So can you explain the difference between economics and finance? Yeah. So if you think about economics, there's lots of areas of economics, right? People talk about microeconomics and, and macroeconomics. And one of the main areas is what we call financial economics or, or finance, right? And so for me, it's very similar. And if you look at a, you know, our finance department, uh, a large fraction of the faculty have PhDs in economics, right? Uh, mine is in finance, um, but all my coursework uh, in my graduate school was in the economics department. So they're very, very closely related. Um, so it's more about the questions we ask in our research. Interesting. Ooh, that's that's something we got to touch on too. Is the focus of your 
research. So, so maybe can we go straight into that? I, I mean, you spend a lot of time, obviously, in research, being in your position with your background. So, how do you decide where to focus your research? Yeah, so that's a. It's another one where, to some degree, um, it's the mentorship of the faculty that you have along the way. Um, so, where I did my PhD, there was a, a big emphasis and some very famous people that worked in the area of of institutional investors um, and sort of their role in governance uh, and their role in sort of their performance, right? How do mutual funds perform? Uh, and so because of my exposure to that area and the advice of my advisors and things like that, I, I kind of went in that direction. Um, now, it was not what my dissertation was on, uh, but there was so much training and emphasis on that where I did my PhD that, that you know, I, I couldn't help but be interested in it and sort of continue on that path. So I've, I've, most of my work centers around sort of the institutional investor environment, thinking about things like, you know, how does BlackRock and Vanguard and big institutions, how do they impact corporate governance decisions and how do they perform? Um, but a lot of this, again, is, is this running theme of, of the mentorship and, and uh, what I was exposed to in, you know, before I came to Rice. So if that's your focus for your PhD, do you become sort of this hot topic, uh, you know, amongst the black rocks of the world? Aren't they going to want to pick your brain on, as you said, the governance and performance components? Well, so it depends a little bit on what what your uh, research shows, right? Um, so depending on what you're what you're saying about them, you know, might make some of them, you know, friendlier than than others. Um, my most of my work on. Uh, performance, right? We do a lot of work here on mutual fund performance, for example, um, and thinking a lot about how to tease out performance from that's due to skill versus luck, right? Um, and there's a li large literature on this, and we, we work a lot on this myself with a, another colleague here at Rice, Kevin Crotty. Um, but the, the results of that suggest there's not a lot of skill in that, in that world. Um, some, for sure, but not a lot and, and hard to determine who is good and who's not. That doesn't maybe engender you to be sort of the popular academic in, in their world necessarily. But, you know, this is the, this is the benefit of being a, an academic, right, is, is uh, you don't have to make people happy to make your, to, to work on your research and to hopefully search for the truth. So similar, you mentioned your dissertation. What was your dissertation focused on? So my, you know, way back when I was, and I've continued some of this, but but largely it was about litigation firm, sort of uh, litigation and the impact on firm policy decisions. Um, and I've kind of, I've, I've tilted that a little bit towards thinking about more shareholder litigation uh, and the interaction of shareholder litigation with institutions as I've gone sort of uh, gotten a little farther afield from, from my time in the PhD program. Um, but, but kind of a, a running sort of side theme in my research is related to regulation and litigation and legal aspects. Let's pivot to the teaching experience. And so let me start off with a foundational question. What if, if there is a defined one, what is your teaching philosophy? Yeah, so um, in, a, in a program like this, uh, you know, this is at the end of the day, we're training people to go out into the world, right? Um, for, from an MBA standpoint, at least, it's very much a degree geared towards being a professional. Um, and so I don't want to lose sight of that. I, I teach right now and have for a number of years the core finance class. So there's still very much of a, we're trying to get the theoretical underpinnings down, but, but we can't lose sight of what's practical and what's, what's happening in practice. So that's important. Um, so that's, that's one big sort of 
piece uh, of, of my philosophy. The other is to bring in what I know from a research standpoint. Uh, because there's there's a, a tendency it, to want to sort of talk about anecdotes and tell war stories and, well, you know, here's what I've seen in my one job or, or here's what I did on this one project. And, and I don't want students to lose sight of the fact that, you know, there's a big world out there and uh, there's a lot of people doing things a lot of different ways. And the research helps us sort of ground ourselves in what, what we're seeing on average, for example. And so wherever I can, I want to bring that stuff in. Um, and so depending on the course, you know, maybe there's less room for that in core than there might be in an elective, uh, but where appropriate, I want to make sure that we're touching on kind of the stuff that I know from the research side, because this might be one of the few chances that they have to be exposed to, to that, right? I mean, the average person, once they go out into the world is not reading the journal of finance on a regular basis, right? Nor should they be. Um, but it's good for them to get a sense of, of where our understanding is on these things. Um, and, and the one last thing I'll say is I try and be very, very upfront about the limitations of our knowledge, you know, whether it's the theoretical background or, or any of this stuff, you know, here's, here's what we're pretty sure we know, here's what we think, but don't know so that they recognize this is all a work in progress and no, no answer is going to be perfect. Um, and I think it's, it's pretty easy for, for somebody to get up and say, this is the way we do it and how we should do it. Uh, versus, you know, here's how I think the best approach is, but here's the costs and benefits of that. Okay. You brought up something that I wanted to bring up later, but I'm going to pull forward in the conversation. And for me, it was 10 years ago when I took core finance. Oh my gosh, 11 years ago plus. So <laughs> I remember the conversations and it went something like, well, that's great. Professor X, you know, but in the real world, man, <laughs> you know, that conversation, right? Where someone who was in finance before go getting their MBA, and then there's that delta, right? But well, this is what I've seen out there. And then here's what we're teaching. And then there's like that, that difference. I remember a certain someone saying, well, actually, there's not as much of a delta, if any, right? So it seems like there was almost like a spectrum of how to go about seeing those two domains, the practical and the research slash academic side. So how should folks think about that? Is there a difference? Is that illusory? How does one think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think there are absolutely differences between what, you know, I want people to do and what they may end up doing, right? Um, the why, because, because knowledge bases evolve, right? Our understanding from an academic side often leads practice. Uh, or at least that's my hope that it will, right? Um, but we also know my my buddies over in the organizational behavior department are going to tell you that that organizations are slow to update and change, right? It's hard to do new things, um, and so there are going to be cases where these things differ, and we would like them to converge. Um, there's going to be cases where they appear on the surface to differ, but if we're speaking the same language, we realize oh, we're just we're just framing something a little bit differently, but these are really very similar, right? Um, so there's there's going to be some of both out there. I think where you've been successful in in absorbing this material at the MBA level is to be able to make that choice and say, I recognize why these things are different, and I'm choosing this for a good reason. If you can do that, I'm happy. You know, do something that's opposite of what I say. If you completely understand why, then you've done exactly what you need to do. Right. It's more the I'm doing this because the last guy did this. Um, and so I don't know a better way. Well, maybe there's some benefit to business school. I mean, my, my snarky reaction to this is always, well, if, if everything was going so great and this is how you do it, why are you here? Right. That's always the, the snarky response to that. That's not always fair. 
right? Um, people come for a variety of reasons, but I hope people are open to maybe not everything they saw uh, is perfect. The other thing I hope they're open to is just because you saw it at your job doesn't mean that's how they do it everywhere else either, right? Back to sort of this small sample thing that we all are, you know, uh, subject to a little bit. Can you give an example of how what you're referring to, the research or the academic side has led to some kind of substantive change out, say, in the commercial space? Yeah. So, I mean, there, there's some some very classic, nothing nothing I am responsible for, right? I don't want to take credit for that, but, but there are some great examples of this. So in my world where I do a lot of work on institutional investors, I mean, index funds are a huge thing now, right? And they're gaining market share. Most of the flows, the new money growth in, in asset management is going to index type funds. This is an outgrowth of finance research, right, from, from many, many years ago. Um, but this is, this is something that comes out of the academic world. Um, option pricing, right? This is something that happens every day when we do hedging, right? I'm in Houston, so all of the energy companies that are actively engaging in risk management through hedge projects, uh, hedging products, the reason we can do that is because of academic research on pricing derivatives. So there's, there's lots of examples of how this has made its way in, right? Um, now, obviously, it goes both ways, right? As academics, we learn a lot from observing what's happening in reality, right? And we update and try and understand that. So often, often our jobs are taking what we see um, and sort of distilling it into something that we can communicate out more broadly. But taking what's in the world is sort of, you know, this is what's happening. Uh, why, right? And and how do we put that in the language that's easy for us to understand and communicate? Mm. That's such an eloquent response. Thank you for that. Goodness. <laughs> so let's talk about your actual just personal teaching experience at, at Rice. W what are some of maybe the highlight moments that you've had teaching students? Maybe something that has surprised you, maybe some odd experiences, uh, you know, share with us some of those highlight real moments. Yeah, so uh, so I started here in fall of 2010, um, and I came straight out of my PhD program. Um, I did my undergrad in Texas uh, in a, at a small university in San Antonio. A number of people from that school uh, will come and get their MBAs at Rice, for example. So my first year pulling up and teaching my first class and having in class people I had been in college with, that was probably one of the weird highlight moments, right? That, that's a little bit of a strange dynamic. It's like, okay, you know, I, I have sat in class with this person. Now I'm teaching this person. That's, that's a little strange, right? Um, but interesting. Um, and then, then as you get go through time, you know, you get a lot more experience. You get a lot more comfortable. I was, I was my first few years here, just terrified every time I go went into a classroom. Um, now I am still terrified every time I go into a classroom, but I know it's going to be okay, right? Um, and so that's a a big part that has has changed, right? Um, but in terms of the stuff that I love, the every year is different, right? That's what's so great about this this profession it, on the teaching side. You know, I love the research, but the teaching side, you get sort of this immediate feedback. Um, and so, you know, if you've bombed one day, right, everybody was asleep, this didn't work, you can adjust. Um, that's all. That's not a great outcome. But but the opposite is also true. Right. Here's a day where people really learn something. Um, and and those are you know, those happen occasionally. And that's still even now it sounds corny, but that's really valuable. Um, occasionally, students will with very different backgrounds from finance 
will come up and, t- and talk about how they're actually, they never thought this would be anything they would be interested in. And now they don't hate it, right? Like that's a huge win as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and those, those moments are the ones that kind of make it worth it, I guess. Um, now it, it's great to have sort of side conversations with people in the class that are already finance folks and are going to continue to do finance. But that's to me way less, uh, I guess, maybe rewarding than than converting the person that, that was going to go into marketing and say, no, maybe I really want to do finance. Like that's, those are rare. And so those, those are the ones that I think are uh, um, kind of the wins, I guess. Not, not that I want to steal marketing students, but it's just, you know, it's, it's hard enough to convince people that are already sold that what you have to say is reasonable. Mm. I remember when I was taking core finance, there were folks somewhere in the middle of the semester, folks were sort of wringing their hands and saying, ah, this is a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. And it was professor James Weston at the time. I remember he said, you know, well, I thought about this and, and how, what's the pace, what's the cadence that he should be at? What's that optimal point? And he, he put, down a simple graph and one is just a line of where he essentially wanted to teach just up and to the right and then the ability for folks to teach initially started with that line and then it would drop off it'd be a greater and greater gap and so there's this balance where you can't teach so fast that you just sort of lose everyone and you don't retain anything but you can't teach so slow that you're never a little uncomfortable in terms of you know how you're being stretched to learn, and I, I always remember that. I thought that was a beautiful way to to frame it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And James is one of my good friends, and and so he and I think a lot the same on these things. But you know, in some sense, if you're doing this right, nobody is happy, right? Because some stu- you know, because you're you're hitting this middle student that doesn't maybe exist, right? And there, for some people, this is too slow. And for other people, it's too fast. And and you're trying to kind of hit it up the middle. Um, you know, but this is this is the cost of being a core a core finance professor, right? You're not it's not the elective where people have chosen to be there. You got to sort of make it accessible for everybody, but still interesting and in pushing some of this the right tail students and making sure you don't lose the left tail students. And and that's a challenge. And and to be honest, it's a challenge. I'm still working through every year, right? I don't have this nailed. Um, and every year we're you know I'm tweaking things to to hopefully you know make it a better experience for everybody a little bit. Well, that's I, I love that. And and what are some of the if you could just pick one or two of those major tweaks over the years, what, what are some of the things that have changed, whether it's in your philosophy or your teaching style or how the department generally is helping to serve students or or the broader community? Yeah. So um, so a couple of things for me, um, slowing down was a huge one. Right. Um, so another example of going back to, you know, my first year you're prepping classes for the first time. I'm terrified that I'm going to run out of stuff to talk about, right? That I'm going to get to my, the end of my slides. And, and you know, there's this fear. Uh, it's, you know, kind of like one of these homework nightmares you have when you're a kid that, that you're going to show up and not have enough material to go over in class. Um, and as the, as the time has gone on, the amount of material that I cover has just decreased, if anything, right? Because you, you know where to slow down and, and you know, where the sort of productive uh, asides are. Um, and so that's one of the things that's changed uh, very much at the front end of classes, slowing things down a bit to make sure everyone's keeping up and, and, and building that the building blocks for the rest of the course as best you can. Um, and then the other thing is to, even though for the most part, finance it doesn't change year to year, um, bringing in some of the more current topics, and I do this usually at the end of my course, you know, this year there there will be questions I'm sure about things like SPAC and and ESG 
um, that come up, trying not to completely push those off, even though they're not, you know, we don't have a ton of time for the sort of current, current topics in core finance. We've got electives for that. Touching on those things a little bit keeps people interested and engaged. And I've been doing more of that as I've gotten a little more sort of senior, right? Recognizing that you don't have to stick sort of lockstep to the the old standards and can, can deviate a little bit to get people engaged. Going back to the economics and the, the finance and, the, and, and I'm thinking sort of a macro perspective, do you have any just, just br- like writ large, any broader concerns from a economic slash finance perspective for the world? I mean, we're, we're, everything's shrinking. We're coming more and more global village. Finance is evolving. You know, there's the obvious crypto, which is changing currency. I mean, a tremendous amount of things, as you're saying, institutional investment is, is changing very rapidly. You also have robo in, in investments uh platforms out there there's just a tremendous amount there's it's changing the ethical concerns as well right as as all this stuff is happening so just broadly speaking do you have any sort of broader concerns about how the domain of finance and economics is being executed addressed or otherwise impacts humanity right now particularly as it relates to sort of my research area um the ESG stuff is incredibly important and it's just changed almost overnight. Um, and, and, uh, you know, probably in, in important ways that are, that are hopefully good. Right. Um, but we're seeing this, um, this emphasis all of a sudden on certain ESG issues that are now being taken up by sort of the big players in the investment world, right? Your, your big three, your BlackRock, your Vanguard, your state street that are taking up some of these ESGs issues and voting in certain ways. Um, you know, a lot of this ESG stuff relates to big environmental questions where we don't have obvious solutions, either through the corporate level or through sort of the government level, right? I mean, you guys can watch the news. It's hard to get consensus on how to address some of these things. It's hard to get consensus on whether one should address these things, right? Um, And so what you're seeing is you're seeing some of that debate percolate into public firms and being driven by uh, institutions that five years ago weren't, weren't, in this at all. Um, I think that's fascinating. I don't know if I have any sort of prescriptive, here's what should be happening. I think it's really interesting and I don't know what the outcomes are going to be because it's really complicated and something that that everybody is kind of worried about now, whether you're on the firm side and thinking about how are the institutions going to vote, whether you're in the institution side and saying, what's the, you know, where do we need to be on these issues now, given where the rest of the market is? It's all changed so much so fast. Um, that from a pure academic standpoint, it's fascinating. I think from a world standpoint, it's it's potentially going to have some dramatic impacts. Doesn't have to, but it's it's the first time I've sort of seen this head of steam in something changing dramatically within sort of most firms about how they should behave and and what things they should prioritize above and beyond just sort of standard. Let's you know make good investment decisions. Interesting. I mean, I mean that sounds like. If, if I was back in business school and, and thought about that, and if that was a trend, that sounds like a fascinating place to dive into and get really boned up on. So that way you can go in and help to shape some of those, what should be or ought to be the case, or what should the policies be? That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. No, but it's complicated, right? Because, you know, it, it, is it the job of, of a given firm to do stuff to benefit the world if it comes at the expense of their shareholders. This is where the, the the tension really is. And it's really, really hard to to sort of come down on either side of that from an ethical standpoint. It's a complicated problem. And, and I think it will remain a complicated problem. 
you know, just in terms of if folks want to either deepen their knowledge or experience in what we've talked about here or finance, generally speaking, um, what, what would you recommend to someone who's either thinking about going into or diving into finance and business school, or maybe they studied finance and have gone out into the air quotes real world and maybe want to, you know, bone up even further. What sort of recommendations would you, would you like to put out there? Yeah. So, I mean, I think if you're coming into business school and thinking about it, I think, I think students need to really look at where they want to be in 10 or 15 years. Right. Um, because that will determine kind of what, how much of finance you want or need, um, and, and what path you're going to be on. And it turns out that if you, if you have sort of eyes on, you know, any sort of relatively high level management position in most organizations, there's going to be a basic level of finance that you need. And so I don't want students, even if they're going down a very different path to kind of lose sight of the, the fact that it becomes an important part of your career path down the road, potentially, even if that's not what your area of expertise or interest is in. Um, but in terms of sort of boning up, uh, for me, it's it's reading a lot, right? Just understanding what's happening and not not the academic stuff, but just in the world, right? Whether it's reading the journal on a regular basis, reading just, you know, financial press and saying what's happening. Um, you know, the, the other one, and it's going to sound like I'm making an advertisement for it, but it's my favorite read, Matt Levine on his a Bloomberg blog. And it's just tremendous. If you want to stay in touch with sort of financial markets, at a level that makes you informed, but not at a level that makes you confused. I, I can't imagine a better better resource than that. So I read, you know, that comes to my email box, and I read that religiously, uh, and I learn stuff every time, right? Um, and so I think I think there's stuff out there like that that I think is is important without sitting down with textbooks and and consuming things through sort of those traditional paths. There's there's so many resources out there given given the modern sort of media world that you can take advantage of. You know, caveats apply. Anytime there's low barriers to entry with media, you got to be careful about what you're consuming, right? Um, and that is also true in the finance space. If you know, just as bad, if not worse, in some cases, I don't recommend sort of stock tips from Reddit, for example, right? Um, but you know, GameStop other people is not might something I should go out and buy. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, some people might disagree. Some people, I'm sure, got very rich doing that. We're back to the skill versus luck arguments again. Oh, that's good stuff. Uh, well, very good. I, you know, I guess on that, just in terms of perhaps connecting with with students that have taken courses from you and gone out into finance, have you had any notable conversations where they have come back and discussed with you what their experience has been, and perhaps there was um, a sharing of information back and forth from those conversations? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, thinking about things as as dry as sort of capital budgeting, what discount rate are you using? I ask that to every alum that I talk to when they've gone out into a corporate finance role, right? Because uh, it's fascinating to me. Um, and also I learn and it's good. It's good fodder for discussions in class. Um, but but yeah, I try and sort of say, you know, ask students, what are they seeing? Uh, what are the trends? Um, the, you know, people that end up in treasury and CFO roles have insights that I'm not going to get from my large sample data type analysis, uh, but that's really informative to how I think about what the next question is. Absolutely. Love that. Alan, thank you so much. This was a lot of good information in a very small amount of time. So thank you for coming on and sharing your pearls of wisdom with the, the broader community. And for folks that want to perhaps ask follow on questions or to learn a little bit, a little bit more from you directly, how should they either engage or get in touch with you? 
Yeah, so um, I've got a web page up on the Jones School uh, main website. You can find me in the directory, and that links through to contact information. So that's great. I also have a LinkedIn profile that's that's there that people are absolutely free to you know send me send me a, a contact request and send questions and things. You know, I can't promise that I'm the most timely person in in some of these responses. I always tell my students if you haven't heard back from me in a day. Hit me again because I've probably lost it uh, and I'm not offended at all. So, you know, if, if it's very important, I encourage, you know, people to follow up. Um, but otherwise, yeah, I welcome uh, questions or engagement. I'm always curious as to what people are doing and uh, um, like to stay as in touch with our alums and prospective students as, as much as possible. All right, Alan, this is fantastic. Say hello to James Weston for me. Let him know I'm alive and doing well, <laughs> as are my compadres. And I, while I cannot share the discount rate that I'm using in, in my domain, <laughs> I can't help to put you in the spotlight. So thank you for coming on and sharing uh, your brain trust with us. No, absolutely. I appreciate you guys taking the time and happy to do it. This has been I'll Have You Know. Thanks for listening. You can find links and more information about our guests, hosts, and announcements on our website, business.rice.edu. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you find your favorite podcasts and leave us a comment while you're at it. Let us know what you think. I'll Have You Know is a production of Rice Business and is sponsored by the Rice Business Alumni Board. The hosts of I'll Have You Know are myself, Christine Dobbin, and David Drew Gleaver. 